It's Friday, March 24th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And people ask me, Mike, what makes you so optimistic? And I say, it's just brain chemistry. Jury being out, un if the chemistry is adaptive or maladaptive. But I do think this country is on the right track. And I do think this country is doing more good than harm in the world. And I also think that macro trends about this country are ones of growth, prosperity, and the ability to wrestle with challenges. Now, one thing I should make clear about my comments about this country is that I'm not speaking of this country, the USA. No, my comments are about this country. Now, the population of this country grew by more than one million last year, a boom the likes of which Canada has never seen before. According to new statistics out today, the historic growth is largely attributed to immigration. That's the CBC, the national broadcaster, broadcasting more good news about the nation of Canada, where the population grew from 38.5 million to, I bet you could do the math, even if Statistics Canada didn't provide it, 39.5 million. That's a 2.7 rate of growth, the greatest since 1957, boom times in Canada. In the U.S., these times, the population is pretty stagnant, and it's definitely immigration-averse. And Canada is not only doing the moral thing, but the smart thing. Behind this boom, international migration, most of it temporary, as many seek Canadian stability in an increasingly volatile world. Canadian stability. Wouldn't you like to hear that about a certain country due south of the Great White North? The U.S. and Canada just signed an agreement cracking down on asylum seekers. But look at the flows. Last year, a little over 2,000 people tried to sneak into the U.S. from Canada, whereas 40,000 went in the other direction. Now, I believe the old saw where people would say, you know, if the U.S. is such a bad country, why is everyone so desperate to get here? There is some logic to that. But the stats don't lie. They're 20 times more desperate to go there. Economically, Canada has good immigration policies. Politically, they're not Norway, but they're not at each other's throats all the time, media-wise. Yeah, they have Jordan Peterson, but he's not really a problem. In fact, he's somewhere between national icon and public intellectual who sounds a little like Kermit the Frog. The mean old Canadian businessman, they have one, but he's actually the somewhat lovable Shark Tank panelist Kevin O'Leary. In other words, their Donald Trump is like our Mark Cuban, and their Mark Cuban is Steve Apostolopoulos, who I assume is a decent guy. They say he might buy the Washington Commanders. What a fun name to say when they pan to the owner's box. Apostolopoulos. Thanks, Canada. Canada handled COVID better than the United States, angry truckers notwithstanding. And you know what else they have going for it? Global warming. Oh, I know, I know. It'll be massively disruptive everywhere. But if the earth heats by 2% Celsius, wouldn't you want your starting place to be more Ottawa than Ankara? Plus, they already speak Celsius. So to my Canadian listeners, I say you have my envy. You're a humble, welcoming, decent, and generous lot. Canada gave the U.S. Schitt's Creek, Martin Short, peanut butter, and Celine Dion. They kept tragically hip to themselves. That's fine. That's fair. What have we really given them? We loaned them Kawhi Leonard. I think they have been an excellent neighbor, and now I would venture to say they've moved into the territory of bonafide role model. On the show today, city-killing asteroids and other meteor matters. But first, Sam Sanders was host of the NPR show It's Been a Minute, 
But a year or so ago, he left NPR to focus on other projects, those being Vibe Check and Intuit, two podcasts he hosts, neither which are NPR podcasts. Sam and I get into the freedom of embracing one's own opinion and why journalists using euphemisms may be doing more harm than good. Sam Sanders up next. Intuit is Vulture's flagship pop culture podcast. It is hosted by Sam Sanders, a former NPR correspondent who hosted the It's Been a Minute show. Sam also hosts the weekly podcast Vibe Check, where he and his friends, I don't know, maybe they're not friends. Maybe they're just collegial colleagues who give the impression of deep friendship. Saeed Jones and Zach Stafford kind of give you the vibe check on what's going on in news and culture. If you've been following Sam for a while, you know that this is something like the apotheosis of what he was meant to do in front of microphones. Sam, welcome to The Gist. Oh my God, it's so good to be here. Mike, um, I've actually been a fan of you since I started making audio. I don't know if you uh-huh. know this, but when I started as a croc fellow in 2009 at NPR, we have this two-week intensive audio boot camp. And one of the pieces of audio they played to train us was a new spot you did in which you fit the most number of people into one 40-second new spot ever. <laughs> Do you remember this? Well, we used to set challenges for ourselves because doing a new spot could be very dry and boring. So, yeah. <laughs> and I forget what event it was. It might have been like a St. Paddy's Day thing or yeah, some something kind of festival. Yeah, something with huge stakes. Yeah, yes. I'm sure. And in 40 <laughs> seconds, you get to like 12 people. And our trainer was like, you hear that? Try to do that. And we're like, I don't know. I could do that, but I remember it and I'll never forget it. And yeah, I've just been a fan of yours for a long time. So it's great to be here. Thanks. Thanks. I enjoyed uh, being on, um, on the old show, on the old NPR show in the early stages. And I will say that they used to, I don't know, there was a time at NPR when I was pointed to as the voice who didn't sound typical NPR. And then for different reasons, I think it was less the actual voice. You got this perfectly smooth delivery. You became one of the people they pointed to as the voice that didn't sound like NPR was supposed to sound like. So oh, were you God. proud of that? I mean, I guess it's like, do I want to be proud at that honor or be slightly dismayed that we're still doing that? It's weird. It's like public radio is almost bound by what people think public radio should be. And like my goal with whatever I was making at NPR was just like, forget about all of that. Forget about all of that. And like, I don't know. It's like, I still think fondly of public radio and I want one day for them not to be like, sound more like Mike Pesca, sound more like Sam Sanders. I want to just be like, sound like yourself. Sound like yes. yourself, right? Well, that's the sound, and that was a little bit of a hurdle. But there's also the content. And so when I listened to, I was listening to Vibe Check the other day, and you guys were talking about just issues of, well, you're talking about the ethics of outing a politician, and you got to the anti-drag bills in Tennessee, and you just came out and blasted the anti-drag bills, which is something that I would do on this show. But of course, 
It was something you could never do uh, when you were on NPR. Now, do you look at that? Now, I'll ask you a couple, a double-barreled question, as it were, bad for a host to do. But <laughs> do you look do you look at that as you're being restrained in the days of not having to voice your opinion on NPR? Or do you look at that for NPR and for what they were trying to do, that was proper for that setting? And now what you're doing now with Vulture, it's proper for this setting. I think both can be true. I think both can be true, and I also think that I want to acknowledge that NPR as a news organization actually has the hardest job in the world because unlike the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN, when anybody gets pissed off about what they hear at NPR, they can say, we're going to defund you. We want to defund you. We want to defund you. That is a unique problem to that organization. So I understand the trepidation, but I do think being free as a journalist to say the drag bill is bad does make for better journalism. You know, I remember reading about these mainstream news outlets that had to like play it close down the middle during the fucking civil rights movement. You know, it's like we'll always yeah. have these moments in which there is clearly one right side of history. And the challenge is for mainstream news organizations to be confident enough to do that and to have the right kind of revenue streams to be free to do that. Mm. Okay, let me go to an issue that is, uh, I don't know if you literally talked about it, but it's right at the heart of the uh, Intuit vibe check ethos. So there are many things in the culture that I care about, so I'm going to care about them. There are things that I don't care about, I don't care about, but I see why other people would, right? There are things that, I think there are four categories. The third category is a thing that I don't care about. And if you asked me, I wouldn't have guessed that other people care about it. Like say everything ever going on on Twitch. I'm like really? People watch video games? But it is documented that they do. So I'm not an ignorant person. I'm not going to rail against, the, I'm not like Lear raging on the Heath. Okay. A lot of people care about that. Then there's this fourth category, which is, it seems like people care about it, but I'm very unsure if the care is genuine. Is the care something that is cotton candy? Is it like the supposed widespread acceptance of the phrase on fleek and then like a year later, everyone's like, oh no, no one really cared about it. Here's what I'm talking about, right? This woman, uh, the the past uh, uh, best actress, best supporting actress winner at the BAFTAs, Andrea DeBose, is that her name? Yeah. She did, she does this uh, introduction of a category and at one point she says, Angela Bassett did the thing. Now, and this, I, no, so I have to correct you, it, it wasn't her announcing nominees or winners, that was her opening monologue song and dance bit. You know, they always uh -huh, have to do that uh -huh. where they have like seven minutes of jokes yes. and or singing. Her right. singing montage was a song that honored a bunch of the nominees and at one point right. she's dancing and singing and, and rapping sings Angela Bassett did the thing Viola Angela Davis Bassett my woman Kane yeah right so this is my question Every, so many people online seem to lose their minds. And I wondered, was this just like a flash mob of attention or is there actual genuine care behind so many people having such strong opinions about this one actress's one phrase, Angela Bassett did the thing? How genuine was it? My interest in this was so genuine. Like, <laughs> as an award show junkie and someone who loves cringeworthy moments of internet, it was perfect. I think I liked it because it was just like pointing out the absurdity of award shows as we know it. When, when Ariana DeBose gets to the moment where she's rap singing, Angela Bassett did the thing, if you watch the video, 
She's tired. She's winded. <laughs> They've had her running through the auditorium sing-songing for like seven minutes, and she's exhausted. So it's not her just saying Angela Bassett did the thing. She's like, Angela Bassett did the thing. Like, And so for me, the larger meta commentary is like, when are we going to fucking change the way we do award shows? Because this shit is bonkers dude <laughs> and then like watching the internet remix it it's like that was that's what the internet's made for in my opinion it was fun and light and if you wanted to get bigger with it you could it's my perfect version of internet and i and i don't know me and all my friends cared a lot about it and i spent about two weeks telling everybody who would listen including my dogs angela bassett did the thing uh-huh but there was another substrain of the discourse around this which is what does did the thing even mean and I, I've heard you use that phrase. I've heard many people use that phrase. That's not, an, uh, that's not a phrase that should confuse anyone, should it? I mean, it's kind of similar to like, go off, sis, or like, it's like, mm, you're doing good, right? And right. I think in general, <laughs> over the course of Angela Bassett's entire career, going back to what's love got to do with it, she's been doing the thing. She's one of the greatest actresses of our time, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know. There is also this kind of like need to linguisticize every word that ends up on the internet or in our mouths. Like I'm seeing all these articles now about like, no one knows what woke is. What is woke? Woke is dead. Woke is alive. And it's like, oh yeah. gosh, we gotta beat these words to death. We gotta beat right. these words to death. And that's just how it because, goes. Because I think Bethany Mandel uh, wrote a book on woke and then blanked on a succinct definition. And everyone <laughs> rushes in with, you can't even define it versus of course we can't define it versus there is no definition versus my favorite was, the definition is just kindness. Yes, of course, that's, that's, that's why it's so controversial it just means kindness yeah for me woke just means black that's it that's all it <laughs> when, does whenever people are saying i'm anti-woke i'm saying ah, i bet you're a little anti-black aren't you aren't you aren't you aren't you <laughs> well then that's the whole thing where people trace the uh the derivation of woke and uh you know did it start with was it was it new jack city or it started with uh it started with you know some piece of black culture and then was appropriated and twisted. i wrote an essay on the history of woke yeah. i'm googling woke sam sanders npr okay i found my essay and i cite yeah. in this essay that snl was doing a death to woke sketch back in 2017 uh-huh um okay in this essay which i just found that i wrote years ago okay let's talk about um, it. you could compare it a lot to the phrase politically correct Yes. And it used to be a phrase that we thought was good, and then everyone used it, and it became bad. It's just the nature of language. Once everyone finds out the thing, it becomes bad and tired. But it's also important to have a phrase that, or language, that we understand what it means. Um, I got into, I I did a uh, substack. Actually, my whole substack started with me and Adam Davidson debating this, and then he withdrew from the debate. But anyway, (laughs) I said, I said... Okay, let's say woke is this imperfect phrase. What I usually use, I don't know if you're aware of this, there was this um, kind of survey called the Hidden Tribes. It was a psychographic analysis of different types of Americans. And the one that overlaps with woke are progressive activists. So I would sometimes say social social justice activism or progressive activism. Of course, that's a multi-syllabic way to say the very succinct woke. It is still good to have a phrase that there is a general agreement that you're connoting a certain mindset or your opinion, Sam, is it not good to have that? I don't know. I think a lot of this stuff needs to be as specific as possible. One of the things I've always bristled at um, was journalism's desire for euphemism 
when the point mm -hmm. of our work should be clear, specific language, you know? Me and too. Everyone's like, well, this is racially tinged or racially flambéed. It's like, no, it's racist, right? Or like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all of you people are BIPOC. It's like, no, 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 I'm black. They're that, they're that. We can talk about it. And so I feel like the challenge here is to be specific and succinct about the specific thing you were talking about. I don't need to say BIPOC if I'm talking about land acknowledgements. I need to say native peoples, indigenous right. peoples, right? I don't need to say, you know, Donald Trump's comments on Mexicans were possibly racially charged. I just need to call it racist. And there's something about the view from nowhere, both sidesism of mainstream journalism that has us constantly seeking out euphemism. When we know how to be specific with our words, we're trained in this shit. We're journalists. Does that extend to, for instance, not saying homeless, but saying the unhoused, which is now a preferred way to talk to about people who don't have homes? Or he wasn't a felon or a, uh, a convict, a formerly incarcerated person or a person with uh, experience in the criminal justice system. Are those euphemistic phrases that you bristle at as well? I mean, I'll say whatever is in style right now to be nice. But for me, it's always like, don't let a conversation about semantics distract you from the real conversation, which is money. Mm -hmm. It's money. When we talk about the unhoused or homeless people, we can talk about what we call those folks, but we should also talk more about what it would take to get them unhoused, which is money, right? And I, I don't yes. know. I think that like there is this internet tendency to focus a little bit too much on the semantics and not enough on like the bread and butter and power and money at play. Well, I want George power. I want money. I don't call me whatever. <laughs> I want power and money. George Packer, writing in The Atlantic, did a very good essay, I thought, called The Moral Case Against Equity Language. And he's agreeing with you, but he's pointing his finger at the cause mostly of being um, the DEI professionals who maybe can't get our actual laws changed and can't get society changed. But what they can do is get our language changed. So that's what we do achieve. Oh, yeah. And what does it do? It gives us, you know, layers of separation between actually solving a problem and describing a problem. And so in a way, maybe it's a little horseshoe Sherry theory, but um, Vivek Ramaswamy wrote Woke Inc. And his point is, you know, he's trying to be a provocateur and make money. But his point is corporations love using all the language of the DEI world as much as they can. Yeah, so you can forget how they're fucking them. you. So, you can, so then you, you can go. forget how they're yeah. fucking you, man. I tell you what, I am not a businessman. I didn't study economics. But the older I get, the more I realize all these stories, all these hot button issues, all these things that we're discussing in the zeitgeist right now, they're tied to money and power. And these are always conversations about money and power. It can be a conversation about the housed and unhoused and what you call folks who are homeless. But in actuality, it's about how do we take away power from homeowners? How do we give more power to renters and to governments to give more money and power to the unhoused to have somewhere to sleep? Mm -hmm. That's it, right? And I want to have those conversations. And part of what I love with Intuit is that a lot of these chats, which are about pop culture, it's a pop culture show, they're also chats about the industry. 
Their chats about the entertainment industry and the power people have there and the money that's at play there. You know, I love a conversation about the streaming wars. I love a conversation about what it means or takes for a show to get canceled or renewed. I love a conversation about IP and how it's changing the way that we consume all media. Like that for me is just as important as the semantics that we put on top of stuff. I've, I don't ever want to have a conversation that is just semantic anymore. It's also about money. It's also about power. So the last big thing I wanted to ask you, Intuit is a show where you have on rotating guests, experts, often people affiliated with uh, New York Magazine, uh, as Vox is, but the uh, vibe check is you and you, and the, th- the three of you talking week in, week out. And this is what I think about. Um, for years, for decades, that sort of conversation just didn't exist, and now it does. Mm. And so you can look at it, three similarly uh, situated Uh, individuals who are acting a little bit um, as a check, right? As a check to the monoculture. But since there is no monoculture and since there is no mainstream, now what the show is, is three similarly um, oriented guys basically agreeing with each other. Yes, Andrew, there's some minor disagreements. We both, we disagreed over tar. Saeed hates tar. I love tar. We Uh actually disagreed over the usefulness of outing politicians i actually don't think it works the others do we disagree a lot i think the thing with us is that like we're actually friends so we don't fight we just disagree that's what i tried to have a show where there were three people getting along but they didn't start off with 20 years uh of background i had a right person a left person it just didn't work it fell apart i i said to myself maybe that was too far afield to cast the show maybe the disagreements or the things we talked about couldn't be as big as you know exactly where the fault lines are in popular culture but this was my question what is the right amount of disagreement to have on a show like that what is the right amount of a agreement that you can still have and say it's still vital even though we're generally agreeing and not you know, not give yourself the excuse of well sure we're three guys who agree but put us uh, up against the culture at large we you know are the uh, ombudsman or we're the uh, shadow government of the culture at large thus giving us the license to you know generally agree with each other so much that you have to take it in the context of the overall conversation how do you how do you kind of put your finger on the scale as far as that consideration i mean i think all i know is with me and zach and saeed the reason it works so well is because we have like a genuine love and respect for each other like i love those guys i really do and i view our conversations as the conversations i would have with my brother or my aunt or my cousins it's like that right and i'm walking to these conversations saying i admire you and respect you and i think you're really smart I want to talk about this thing and see where we disagree. And like we come to these conversations to learn from each other, not to score points. And that makes all the difference. And so like that's all I can really speak to in terms of like what kind of conversation we're going for. It's it's not particularly profound. I just like them. I like them. And, And I think that what I want to hear more in news media period is people debating I am done. I won't, let's not even use that word. People talking together who have a mutual respect for each other. The crossfire model of cable news, the MSNBC nature of combative cable news. I'm tired of that. Is there a way to digest the world by hearing people have productive conversations where they show a genuine interest and care for each other? I'm so into that right now. So that's why I'm making Vibe Check. And I honestly want Intuit to feel the same way. 
does that pull for does that necessarily pull from the same silos if that's how you cast a show like that yeah my silo's right <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry so how, then how do you my invite people outside right. your silos to listen i mean everyone's invited they might like it but how do you actually or is is that a consideration trying to reach the person who's not on board to begin with do i need now, to i don't reach mean the, the panelist i mean the audience member yeah, that ship has sailed. And I used to do that thing where you talked to the whole country. I worked for NPR. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. you know what I realized? It's really rare that you change people's minds. It's really rare that you change people's minds as a journalist. Now, I'm not even trying to change people's minds. I'm just trying to interest people. Interest people who don't necessarily agree with me, or at least that's what I'm thinking about. I mean, that's kind of a platform question. You know, with the loss of monoculture and the diffusion of media, people just get their shit from everywhere these days. I'll see people, I mean, young people watch the news on TikTok. You and I don't do YouTube enough, but the kids live on YouTube, right? So it's like, <laughs> my question, if I'm thinking about that, is like, how can I put myself in all of the spaces where those folks might be? How can I right. do that? And right. that is a challenge and a nut that has yet to be cracked because a lot of these different spaces are kind of age-specific. You know, YouTube viewers are younger than podcast listeners. Podcast listeners are older than TikTok users. And so I think less about political divides and more about generational divides. Am mm -hmm. I making things that my 17-year-old nephew would want to listen to? I don't know. I don't know. I want to think about that, though, and try. Sam Sanders is the host of Intuit, one of the hosts of Vibe Check, and a noted pickleball aficionado. Yeah, you've been listening. Come to L.A., <laughs> Mike, we'll play pickleball. It's, it's a date, and the great thing about that sport is we'll move the bare minimum. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mike. And now the spiel. I don't know what you're doing tomorrow. I will be huddled in my storm cellar, fretting about the deadly meteor threatening us. Brian Shields is a meteorologist from WFTV Orlando. And might I say, how prescient of a local TV station to hire someone who specializes in the relatively rare news phenomenon of meteors and their chances of hitting us. Here's Shields with details. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm meteorologist Brian Shields. This is kind of wild but this stuff does happen. This is an asteroid that is gonna pass between the Earth and the orbit of the moon. So inside of the moon, between the Earth and the moon, by tomorrow afternoon on our Saturday afternoon at about 3.51 Eastern US time. So again, tomorrow afternoon, Saturday afternoon, this asteroid is gonna cut right between the Earth and the moon, a very sizable asteroid. We're talking about over 300 feet wide. Okay, it's technically an asteroid, not a meteor. Meteors once it enters our atmosphere. And this asteroid is one they are calling a city killer asteroid. That's the headline, city killer asteroid to zip between Earth and moon. Because if it were to crash into a city, it could wipe out that city. But in the same article from that headline, it notes that there is no chance it will crash into a city or anywhere else on Earth. So maybe it's more accurate to say it's a city killer if the city were suspended in outer space between the Earth and the moon, you know, the path of the asteroid. Lots of things could hurt us if they could hurt us, but they won't because they won't. You know what else 
in the airless vacuum of space would kill a large city. Space, space itself. It's the airlessness and the vacuumosity. It's odd to pluck one interstellar object out there and say this, this is the deadly one, when all of space, all of the objects, and all of the background is deadly. It's a city killer in the sense that every bucket of water drawn from the ocean and every tree in the forest is a potential murderer. So it's a hyped meteor as befits a hyped-filled media. Let's say that you want to get out from under all of this, out from trying to scare us about a meteor, out from all the other bad news that you want. You want to duck not just a meteor that right now is 100,000 miles from Earth, but everything else in media going on on Earth. Well, the Federal Trade Commission proposes a rule making it easier for consumers to click to cancel recurring subscriptions and memberships. You know the phenomenon. You subscribe to a thing, then you want out, and just when you thought you were out, they pull you back into an interminable phone conversation or an online chat with a specialist who clearly is a robot at first, and then eventually a person trained to act like a robot. Now, I heard about the FTC proposal. I read about it in the following outlets, NPR, CBS, NBC, Fox, Vox. Go ahead, Google it. Put on Google News. You'll notice no newspapers covered this because the most notorious cancelers of cancellation are newspapers. If you want to cancel the New York Times, they basically bargain with you like you've just walked into a Turkish market. If you want to cancel the Chicago Tribune, good luck. They basically waterboard you out of that inclination. Alden Capital Management, who bought the Trib, they used all their savings that they're not paying journalists to invest in advanced cancellation evasion techniques. But the worst of all is the LA Times. I have canceled the LA Times more often than LA has canceled Mel Gibson. I need the LA Times every once in a while for a big story, like the mayor's race, that was a good one, or when the city council got all scandalous. And then it sits there barely offering me any different coverage or better coverage than the five other daily newspapers I subscribe to. For you folks, for you people, your why. And then when Alex Baldwin shot the cinematographer, my first thoughts were, Honestly and earnestly, for her and her family, it was a tragedy. And my second thoughts, not soon after, was I am going to have to subscribe to the LA Times again, aren't I? So right now, I am in a period of subscription, but I would like to get to a period of non-subscription. So today, I engage, I'll read to you some of my actual transcript with the LA Times, or what they claim is the LA Times. Hi, I'm your LA Times virtual agent. Bot said, what can I help you with today? I said, where do I click to cancel my subscription? Bot said, sorry, I don't understand. Bot said, what can I help you with today? I said, can I cancel my subscription online? Bot said, sorry, I don't understand. What can I help you with today? I said, cancel subscription. Bot got very excited at this. Oh, Bot said, we recently launched our new subscription center, exclamation. Member login opens in a new window, external. Here, you can update your billing info, reset your password, place a vacation hold, report a delivery issue, cancel your subscription, sign up for newsletters and more. Now, I have to tell you, I already knew that because the way I had gotten into this bot conversation was to go to the new subscription center where you cannot cancel your subscription. Bot asked, did that answer your question? I said, where do you cancel? Bot said, sorry, I didn't get that. Did that answer your question? I'm not making any of this up. I said, no. Bot relented. Gonna get a human for you. Then the human came on. Richard said, I'm sorry to hear that you want to cancel, but is there anything else we could do to keep you as a subscriber? I said, 
Actually, I'm looking to turn off auto-renew if possible. Richard said, I'm sorry, but our digital subscriptions need to be enrolled in automatic payment to remain active. Would you be willing to reconsider keeping the service for a discounted rate of only $1.48 per week or $5.92 every four weeks? I said, how's that a discounted rate? $1.49 per week is $5.92 every four weeks. You're just giving me different terms for the billing cycle. I read it wrong. That was me being a little bit inhumane, the human clarified, but basically said, no, if you want to cancel, you have to come back to me and do this all over again. But he was willing to knock 50 cents off my per week subscription price. Now, I realize I say all this knowing full well that I now run a subscription service, subscribe.mikepesca.com. We've been giving you so much bonus content lately, and there is an auto renew to this, which kicks in, but only with notification. But it is really easy to unsubscribe, and you never have to speak to a customer rep, because if you do, that would probably be me. Or maybe I'd hire Richard if he's looking to freelance. I realize it's weird to tout the benefits of one subscription service as the selling point being it's really easy to stop the subscription service, but that's what I'm doing now. And I do think it gives me a leg up on my media rivals. Plus, unlike the LA Times, subscribe.mikepesca.com will never feature an op-ed like today's LA Times arguing, quote, Congress is scapegoating TikTok. It's no worse than other social media platforms. And even if I did engage in that argument, I would make a much better case than the LA Times did, which is basically not to make the case at all. You also, by subscribing to MikePesca.com and Pesca Plus and ad-free programming, you also won't get this recent LA Times op-ed, I am a black man and a death doula, this work chose me. But you know what? I read the article and I got to say, I'm glad the article exists. If only to have read a piece that contains the line, quote, being a black death doula means I hold space to support the dying and their loved ones emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And to see that, to have Darnell Walker explain that, and then to read Darnell Walker's author ID, Darnell Lamont Walker's work includes Blue's Clues, Karma's World, and Work at Wombats. You know what? That actually makes subscribing worthwhile. So I opted, based on that, not to cancel my LA Times subscription for now. Where else am I going to find tales of death doulas whose day job is riding on a show described as a playful trio of marsupial siblings look for interesting problems to solve in their treeberhood? You're not going to find that anywhere else. You got me, LA Times. But it would be nice to know that shuffling off the mortal coil of being your subscriber is not a 12-stage process better suited to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross than just a simple click and getting on with my life. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca has worked on Work at Wombats and many other endeavors for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Jeeperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>